Good morning, church. Happy New Year's Eve, Eve. We're actually having a Happy New Year's Eve, Eve lock-in tonight, so I get to be up all night. Excited about that. Um, Last Sunday, if you were here, uh, Josh made fun of my Coca-Cola addiction. So I just wanted to point out to everyone, if you didn't know, Josh has a giant bowl of candy on his coffee table in his office. So not the only one who has an unhealthy addiction to sweet things. Just wanted to point that out, Josh, if you're listening. There you go. Back at you. On June 20th, 2009, which was a long time ago, Jill Peterson and Kevin Hines were getting married. Actually, they got married on that day. A day that they had long dreamt of and made plans for had finally arrived and neither of them could have been more excited for the ceremony and the start of their lives ever after as husband and wife. Now, all the details, of course, had been arranged already. And by the details, I mean that the groom had picked out his cake flavor and the bride and her mom had picked out everything else. But everything had been taken care of, right? The clothes had been taken care of. The bride's stuff, the groom's stuff, the the groomsman gifts, all those things. The, The food had picked out. Even the music had been made ready. And they had practiced the night before, just like so many weddings and wedding rehearsals happen. Everything was good to go. It was ready. And they even had double-checked it, of course, to make sure that everything was going to be perfect. And like any couple, they wanted to make sure that their special day would be remembered not only by them, but by all who were there to witness it. However, unlike most wedding ceremonies, they wanted to do things a little different for it to be a little extra special. Now, many of you have seen the following video, but for those who haven't, in the video you are about to see, which I have edited down for time, we see exactly what they did to make sure that theirs would be a wedding that no one would ever forget. Raise your hand if you've seen this before. It's not exactly a new video. Oh, not as many as I expected. Okay, cool. This is the J.K. Jill and Kevin Wedding Entrance Dance. That's the name of the video. It's a lot longer than that if you wanted to go and watch it. It's pretty funny. But here's a few things about this video that I found fascinating. I I heard about this video, or I guess watched it 
I, I believe back in 2009, um, but after the, the video was posted on YouTube about a month after their actual wedding ceremony. So a month later, it went up on YouTube, and within 48 hours, the video had been viewed over three and a half million times in two days. And they're not famous people. Somehow this video went viral in every sense of the word. By the end of the year, it was ranked the third most popular video on YouTube in 2009. The couple appeared on the Today Show seven days after this video went up on the internet. It made that much of a splash that NBC said, we want you on our show. And so they brought them, and not just them, they actually did a reenactment with the entire wedding party on the Today Show a week after this video had been posted on the internet. The day after their Today Show appearance, so eight days later, the featured song, Chris Brown's Forever, had spiked to number four on iTunes. It wasn't even a brand new song, but it went back up to the top of the charts. A few months after that, NBC's popular sitcom, The Office, runs an episode in which two of the main characters, Jim and Pam, get married in the show. The show's other main characters interrupt the service to perform their own version of this very video. It even gets a name drop in the video, in the TV show itself. Talk about art imitating life. So what began as a joke for the enjoyment of their friends and their family who were present became a reminder that some things deserve to be shared and remembered. Now my point for us in showing you this video today was to share a simple fact that clearly Jill and Kevin understood quite well. And it's this, that sometimes you need to do something special to celebrate a monumental moment. I want to talk about this guy today. Let's see that. There we go. This guy named Joshua. Now, I know that most of you in this room right now are familiar with Joshua, but just for a moment, let's pretend like you don't know who he is. And I'll give you a quick who, what, when, where of, of Joshua and also what's happening in Joshua chapter 24, which is where we're going to be reading from today. So the short version of the story is that Joshua is the successor to Moses. And what's going on in Joshua 24, which we'll get to in a moment here, is that the Israelites have come out of Egypt through the whole Exodus phase, and Moses had led them wandering around in the desert for 40 years, but at the very, very end of that time, as they're about to go into the promised land and take possession of it, Moses' time as the leader has come to a close, and he passes on the branch of leadership to his successor, Joshua. So Joshua, who had been sort of a military commander, now gets to be the boss of the Hebrew people as they're entering into the promised land. And he leads them in victoriously. And in the book of Joshua and in some others, we see uh, accounts of the battles that, that he leads and the, and the victories that they attain and the cities that they conquer and the territories that they claim for, for God. But in Joshua chapter 24, we're near the end of that phase of what many would call the conquest era. They've had a lot of success. It's not completely over at this point, but overall, they've taken the land that God had promised them. And Joshua, at this point, is at the end of his life. We know that because in the next chapter, he actually does die. So we know that he's right there at the end, and he wants to make sure that something special happens to celebrate the monumental moment of them achieving what God had told them that they were going to achieve so much earlier. And so where they are at the moment They're in between these two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Elba, and they're in a valley at a town called Sheshem. I may be mispronouncing that, but uh, you can look it up in Joshua 24. Sheshem, that's how I'm going to say it. 
which is basically, if you were to look at a map of the, of the Holy Land, it's essentially right in the center of the map. So more or less, they're dead center geographically of the area that God had promised them. They're in between two mountains that have been symbolic at different points, and they're right in the valley so that everybody can gather together. And that's what's happened. Everybody's there. They've claimed the land, and they're sort of done. And he gets them all together, knowing that this is towards the end of his life. And he wants to make sure that he sets the people of Israel on a path that is a path of following God and not turning away from him. The interesting thing is, if you wanted to go back and look at it, what he does in chapter 24 is essentially a mirror of what he did back in chapter 8. You can go back and compare the two, and they're, they're almost the same thing. Earlier in his time, he had gathered them together in the same place, essentially, and said, are you with me? Are you following God with me? And then many years later, he does the same thing in chapter 24. He says, are you with me? Are you following God with me? And so then we go to chapter 24, and before we read it, uh, the passage that we're focusing on today, I wanted to give you a short recap of what happens in 24, verses 1 through 13. So here's essentially what Joshua does. The people are gathered together, if you can envision this, and he begins to explain to them what they should already know, because he basically tells them their history, their family history. And he starts off with Abraham, who goes way back, and he talks about Abraham and Abraham's descendants and, and how the people of, that were descended from Abraham had ended up in Egypt for a time. But then how God had, had brought them out of Egypt by overthrowing Pharaoh's you know, authority over them. And he brought them out and he delivered them to the promised land. And he talks about some of the battles that they had been victorious over and how they had, everything they had done had been directed by God, by his own hand. And he even talks about how, how God had done this for them. They didn't even win the battles. God won the battles for them. He had delivered them to a place that that they had not grown the crops. They had not tilled the soil. They had not built the cities. It was already done. And God gifted it to them. He's basically trying to say, look what God has done for us. Look where we've come from and look at where we are. Look at his providence. Look at what he's done for his people. So he summarizes these things to lead up to this statement here. He says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River. He's talking about Abraham at that point. Beyond the Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living now. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Remember, he is, he is facing the entire Israel people right now. And I love that he doesn't pull punches. Joshua just goes right at it. Because he starts off by saying, throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped and serve the Lord. Because he knows That even during some of this time that he has just summarized for them, that they were not 100% faithful to God throughout all of that. There were times where they complained about God, or they complained about what he was doing for them, and they would turn back and, and follow and worship idols. Idols of the lands they had just come from, or idols that maybe their ancestor has, has worshipped. They did not have a clean track record. And he says, turn from those things and worship the Lord. But he gives them an option. 
sort of. If it seems undesirable to you to follow the Lord, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Now, I said it's kind of an option because technically it is. He's saying you can choose God or you can choose God's. But what does he not do? He doesn't give them a none of the above. He doesn't give them a option to not serve anything. And I think that's a valuable lesson for us because Joshua knew that if they weren't serving Yahweh, the God of Israel, they were going to be serving something. And for them in that day with the idolatry and just the nature of things, it was going to be another God. But isn't this still true for us today? If we're not going to choose a God to worship, we're still going to serve something. It may not be a deity in the way that we typically think of it, but we will serve something. There's not an option in Joshua's calling to them to not serve something. They're going to worship something. I love that. And his initial remarks, he ends his initial remarks with a, with a statement of his conviction. You guys do what you want to do, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. He's saying, as for us, he's not just saying himself, he's declaring that his family, his lineage will be faithful to God. And I love this because it seems like there should be some background music to this moment, right? Almost like he needed to have like the harp band set up right there. So that as soon as he says, as for me and my house, da-da, you know, we will serve the Lord. And then it's crescendos right off into the distance. Like that's in my mind what I think about because this was a big deal. He was calling the people of Israel. He was trying to inspire them to do the very thing that he was saying he was going to do, which was to renew the covenant to be faithful to God. Now, if you were to keep reading, I'm not going to because it's a fairly long passage, but if you read 16 all the way through 28, you would see their response, his counter-response, their counter-counter-response, and so on. But I wanted to interpret this for you in my own sort of tongue-in-cheek way, so you can go back through and read this to see if I'm being faithful to the text. But here's kind of my semi-sarcastic way of interpreting this for you. In verse 15, Joshua says, Join me in following the Lord. To which they reply in verse 16 through 18, Sign us up. They're in. They want to do it. He says, your track record's not so good and the consequences are pretty serious. Are you sure about this? And if you read that through that, he actually says to them, you are not going to follow the Lord. He says that. You will not follow the Lord. He's saying, you're not doing a great job of this already. And then he goes on to explain, like, what's going to happen if they're not faithful to God? And he's saying, are you sure? Are you sure you want to do this? Do you really get it? And they reply with, yes, we're sure. So he says, you realize you do have to hold yourselves accountable, right? And they said, duh, of course we do. We get it, right? Joshua, come on, man. And then he says, then prove it. And he says, cast away your idols. Which made me think, if he's telling them to throw away their gods that they're worshiping that aren't Yahweh, were they actually doing that even right now? Were these guys that had just come out of the Exodus, just been wandering, just conquered the promised land, seen all these amazing things, even in those moments where they still worshiping idols. I think they were. I mean, it's almost unbelievable. But he says, prove it. Throw away your idols. And they say, we will. Fine. Piece of cake. No big deal. And then he says, suit yourselves. Now, where's that giant rock I ordered? The giant rock that I'm kind of jokingly referring to is a huge stone monument that Joshua set up in that place. And he says, this stone monument that I am putting in this place in Sheshem, it is a witness to us. 
It has heard everything we have said. It has heard our commitments to follow the Lord. And if we are not faithful to that, then this rock will stand as a witness against us. He says, this is a big deal. You can't just half-heartedly do this. You're either in or you're out. And they say they're in, and he says they're in. So what can we learn about people? First of all, we can learn that we need significant moments. And secondly, that we need significant monuments. We need these lines in the sand, these opportunities for us to say, before I was here or before I was this, crossed the line, and now I am this, or now I am here. We need to be able to look back and say, at that point, in that moment, I made a definitive move from one state of being to another. And we need covenants to establish particularly significant commitments. Here's some examples. We talked about a wedding earlier with that video. A wedding is a great example of that. It's where two people who were once separated, separate families, they choose to cross a line and become one family. Most of you in this room, certainly the adults, have experienced that. You know what that's like. Baptism is another one I think is kind of interesting. Because we say, before, I was not with God. But I take this step, and now I am with God. Now I am God's. I like the idea of, a, of, having, of having new babies. And, and in, our, in our past here at this church, you know, we've had congregational baby blessings. And some of you have been a part of those. I was several, several years ago. But that was an opportunity for our church to say, here was a family that did not have this child. Now they do. We're going to have a moment where we recognize that fact. And now they have the child. What a wonderful thing to go back and remember. And what about something as as broad scale, as huge, as like the founding of a country? Ours, for instance. There was a period of time where our founding fathers were just a bunch of guys that had a dream. And they signed a document. And then it became reality. It wasn't over. There was plenty that had to happen to really solidify that. But there was a moment before, a moment during, and a moment after. And it was a definitive state. It was a definitive shift from one state to another. So we need these monuments as well. Let's go back to the wedding. Maybe the most enduring monument to a wedding is the ring that the bride and the groom wear. It's a monument that no matter where they go, no matter what they're doing, no matter who they're with, It's a reminder of the commitment that they made. It's a reminder to tell them, this is who I am now, not who I was then. What about baptism? We just did something that I think is a monument to our commitment to faith. It's that weekly taking of communion. At least it's weekly at our church. Every week we get to come here, we get to sit, we get to hear someone present a message. Thank you, Logan, for doing that for us today. But then we get to take these these emblems that remind us of the commitment that we made to follow the God that sacrificed himself for us. Every week we get to do that. And it reminds us of where we were, what happened, and where we are now. The baby blessing, I was really thrown off by this one, but then I was walking around the halls and I came across this, which I've seen a million times, there's several of these, but my son's in that one, right, somewhere over there. We've got these pictures that are taken during the two-year-old age toddler class. They're mounted up there in the walls. If you never see them, you should go check it out. But it's almost like a monument saying, these kids did not exist at one point in time, but now they do and our church is committed to them. It represents new life being born from the people that have attended this church at a specific point in time. And then, of course, you think about 
the monuments of our country. You think about the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, literal monuments made of stone that remind us of where we were, what happened, and where we went to next. But here's the thing. Even when we have significant moments, even when we have significant monuments, the truth is we are still a fickle bunch. We humans. Even with these things, it is so easy for us to forget the moment, to forget the commitments that we have made just like the Israelites, just like them. So after Joshua's generation had passed away, and you can read about this at the beginning of Judges, but after Joshua had passed, and as the Bible says, after all of the elders that were around during his time, after they had passed on, during which the Israelites were faithful to God, but after that, the people forgot They forgot the commitments that they had made during the time of Joshua. They forgot the moments. They forgot the monuments. And they started to turn away from the God Yahweh and back to these other gods. Because sometimes that's just what happens. In fact, it was so bad that that they began a cycle of turning away from and turning back to God that lasted for centuries. They kept getting stuck in this rut of, oh, we're with God. Oh, we're going to fall away. Oh, we're with God again. Oh, we're falling away. Over And over and over again, I mean, it's almost painful to read Judges because you're like, why can't you guys just figure this out? But come on. (laughs) It's easy for us to point fingers at the Israelites because we can read all of this in hindsight, more or less. But you know, it's so true for us Christians today. We fall prey to the same cycle even several times within our own lifetime. Not even generationally. Sometimes within our own lives, we fall prey to the cycle of forgetting and then remembering and then forgetting and so on. What are the gods that we turn away and serve? Most likely it's not another religious deity, although it could be in your case. Most likely it's something like, and you can check this off in your own brain if this applies to you, we might serve materialism, we might serve selfish ambition or status or greed Or perfectionism, like we have to be perfect. And everyone has to know that we are perfect. Or self-righteousness. Or power. Or lust. These are the gods that we often turn to when we turn away from the one true God. And we can get stuck in these cycles. It's funny because in in the world, we we can develop this collective knowledge. Right? You can go on the internet and find any piece of information you would ever want to know. And it's not like one guy just decided to sit down on Wikipedia and write every single article. It's not that at all. Hundreds, thousands, millions of people over time have been pouring into this collective human knowledge. And so the next generation, in theory, has access to more. They have the ability to know more than the generation before them. But that's not exactly how it works with faith. Every generation has to decide for themselves, are we going to follow or not. Now, it's absolutely true that the faith of grandparents and the faith of parents influences dramatically the faith of children, but it doesn't guarantee it. At the end of the day, that child, who will grow up to be an adult at some point, they will have to decide for themselves, will they serve the Lord or will they serve another God? Every person must choose, and you must choose repeatedly over the course of your lifetime. What do we learn about God in this passage. One thing we learn is that he's very exclusive. 
We learn that his expectations are high and we know that he knows we will fail, which sounds really negative, but I'm going to try to explain this in a way that doesn't sound quite so negative. So you read the exclusivity part, and, and that word sounds wrong to us. Like, we hear the word exclusive, and we automatically think negative things, like it's wrong to be exclusive. And, you know, you're not supposed to act that way towards others. But think about this. In your marriage, if you're married, would you prefer that your spouse is exclusive with you? Probably. So isn't it understandable if we are, have this metaphor of a, of a wedding, of a marriage between God and us, that he, as the spouse wants us to be exclusive to him? That makes sense to me. And what about this? His expectations are very high. In the Bible, in different parts, we read phrases like, be holy, as a, com- <clears throat> sorry, as a command to us. We hear Jesus say, be perfect, just as your heavenly father is perfect. So easy when you just say two words. So much harder to live that out. But we know his expectations are high. And yet we also know that he knows we will fail. That's kind of why the entire Old Testament sacrificial system existed. Every year he gave us opportunities to make amends for all the sins we had committed. He told us different ways to sacrifice animals to forgive ourselves of certain sins. There was a yearly sacrifice that was supposed to wipe the slate clean of everything we'd kind of forgotten about. He knew we would fail, so he set up a system for us to try to make it better. But from the beginning, that system wasn't good enough, which is exactly why Christ upholds our end of this covenant. Because we cannot do it. The Israelites could not. We today, with all the knowledge that we have, we too cannot uphold our end of this covenant. Joshua was right when he says, you will not be obedient to the Lord. That's true for us. We won't. However, Knowing that, God made it okay. He says, if you will seek after and claim Christ as Lord and master of your life, then he will uphold your end of the covenant. Hallelujah for that. And I love the passage in Romans chapter 5 verse 8 where he says, while we were still sinners, meaning unable to make it right ourselves, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, upholding our end of the covenant. If there's nothing else you guys remember from this, I want you to remember these three points. God's historical faithfulness attracts our devotion. From Genesis all the way through Revelation, all of which is past history for us, right? It was written a long time ago. Over and over again, we see him being faithful to the Israelites, to his chosen people, to the new Christians. Over and over and over again, especially through Jesus, of course, we see him show his faithfulness to his people. God's sacrificial faithfulness justifies our devotion. If you want to say, why do I believe in him? The reason is because he first loved you. You guys know the the song, right? Oh, how I love Jesus Because he first loved me. I mean, that's the thing here. He sacrificed himself through faithfulness. And that gives us a reason to be devoted to him. And then finally here, God's continual faithfulness, or the promise of it, renews our devotion. So that even when we find ourselves falling into these cycles of chasing after other gods, he gives us this opportunity through his continual faithfulness to us, to renew our commitment to him. And a lot of this is through the promise of the Holy Spirit, which he has gifted to those of us who believe. If we will just 
channel our lives through the Spirit, we can be made new again. So how do we respond? How do we respond? Joshua's response was, as for me and my house, in lieu of all of these things, we will serve the Lord. So you have to ask yourselves, as for us, will we serve the Lord in 2019? In this new year, choose for yourselves whom you will serve. Will you put away the gods of this world and of your own creation and instead serve the God whose historical, sacrificial, and continual faithfulness has earned your devotion? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord in 2019. What about you and yours?